indeed is good to you. If your Bible turns to the book of Mark, Mark chapter number 3. And as we opened the book of Mark, we soon discovered that Mark is a book testifying of the servanthood of Jesus Christ. We've said this, but each of the four Gospels has its own unique flavor. And Mark seems to be looking at Jesus um, laying his reputation down. Not concerned with what they called him. Is how can I best serve you? <laughs> Warren told me, I didn't know this, Warren told me tonight that he's the one years ago that made this stable up here. Thank you, Warren. How many of you knew that? Warren made that? Anybody? You did. One person. Okay, one person knew. To my knowledge, Warren has not gone around to each of you saying, did you see what I did? <laughs> because Warren became a servant. Bless her heart. Um, when you came in tonight, you probably noticed out here our, our new uh, flooring tends to show footprints when you come in from a, a wet out there. And it shows. Well, I hadn't noticed it, but there were footprints up here. But pretty much the footprints are gone because just moments ago, Amber was up here cleaning the, the floor. I had an army of folks, a small army of folks here last couple of days. When I was in a turkey stupor, they were here changing over from fall to Christmas and decorating. And my guess is, I could be wrong, but my guess is most of you don't even have any idea who did it. Because they didn't do it for your attention. They did it because they're servants. We have an army of servants here. Unsung heroes behind the scenes, not out for public recognition, just out to do the job. Because Jesus did that. That was his example that our Lord and Savior did. This evening I want to read just a, a few verses here, then pray and, and bring a message entitled, The Servants Battles with Pride. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. And he entered again into the synagogue. There was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he said unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they held their peace. And when he had looked around about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out. His hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went out and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. We're talking about the servant. The Servant, capital S, The Servant. My title is The Servant's Battles with Pride. And let me say right off the bat, lest you wonder where in the world we're going here, not battling his own pride. He battled the pride of the Pharisees. Let's pray and ask God to meet with us tonight. Dear Lord, thank you for your love. It's been a good day. Thank you, Lord, for the good service this morning and, and for the good growth groups. And, 
for the sweet spirit that was here. Thank you for those who have braved the weather, the roads. I pray, Lord, that you might meet with us in a special way tonight. Spirit of God, would you move in our hearts, and we'll thank you for it. For we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice in uh, verse number 2, of course, Jesus came into the synagogue. He found a man with a, a withered hand. And they watched him. I have those words highlighted. They watched him. Whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him. What was Jesus' real reason for going to the synagogue in the first place? Well, <laughs> it was the time of the week. Jesus went to the house of God on the Sabbath. That's just what he did to honor and worship God. His purpose was undoubtedly to preach from the scriptures and to teach us remarkable truths. So Jesus came for, of course, good and godly purposes. But why were the Pharisees there? Well, the Pharisees came to catch Jesus breaking the law. They had possibly arranged to have that handicapped man in the audience, knowing full well what Jesus would do. These religious leaders watched him, trying to catch him committing an offense. So what did the servant do? What did the, the servant do? He used this opportunity. They're watching him. Well, as long as they're watching me anyway. <laughs> He used it to minister and to glorify his father. Look at verse 3. He saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. Now in your mind, try to capture this picture. We're in the synagogue now, and in the synagogue are all these religious rulers, Jews of every sort, and they are typically in a synagogue. Many times they would be pretty packed in there. And there was oftentimes much debate, scriptural debate going on back and forth. And it was not always a quiet place. Sometimes it got quite noisy in their debates back and forth. And so in this crowd happened to be this man with a withered hand. We're not told why he was there. I have my suspicions. It's possible it was a setup. I don't know. But he is there with a withered hand. Jesus, of course, saw him, and he chose to use him as a public example. The meaning of stand forth literally means, come stand in the middle of the room. I looked it up. It's the, the literal meaning of those words, stand forth. It means, come out here in the middle where everybody can see you. Now, we're not told a thing about the demeanor of this man with the withered hand. But if he's anything like many of us, if there's something unusual about us, it tends to cause us to be a little a little more shy. We don't want notice drawn to that particular thing. Why? Because as we're growing up, if we have that problem as a child, oh, they love to pick on that particular thing. Perhaps, perhaps it's the ears that tend to be bigger than the rest of the kids. And so you're called all sorts of demeaning names. And so you get into adult age, and that feeling that you had as a child never leaves you. And so you don't have the confidence that you would if you had what you considered normal-sized ears. Here's a man. His hand is withered. Perhaps it's deformed. I understand in today's society or economy, 
it wouldn't be that challenging for him to learn a trade where he did not have to use that hand. But in that, this day, there was not the technology we have today, and pretty much for a man to exceed, succeed out there, he had to use his hands. Jesus, of course, was reared in a carpenter shop using his hands. Most of the men use their hands. So he comes in, and he's handicapped, and the last thing in the world he wants is to draw attention to his weakness. And yet, that's what Jesus called attention to. Now, was Jesus being insensitive to this man? Did Jesus not care about the emotional strength of this man? Did he not think he might be emotionally scarring this man for life by putting him in the middle of the crowd? What's Jesus thinking? Stand forth. Come out here in the middle of the room, he said. He knew, Jesus knew the religious leaders were spying on him. So he decided to make a point and to do it publicly. Jesus occasionally puts us in the public eye that he might be glorified. Last year, or this past year, the couples retreat up in Estes Park, which was a delightful time. I hope this next year many more will be able to join us. Just a delightful time. At least most of it was delightful. On the trip up there, my wife and I, we were in the car, and, and it had been a busy, it always, like always, a busy season, and so we're just enjoying each other's company, and we're just talking back and forth. We're going out of Loveland on 34, and as you're going out of Loveland, you're getting ready to, to start the, the windy roads up into the mountains. <clears throat> there is a school zone there. Now, it's not very well, the signage is not very, very good there. And so I'm going there, and I'm minding my own business, and, and I, I will say, doing a pretty good job of following the speed limit. So I'm blowing through there, and uh, this police officer, very kindly, has his lights on behind me and pulls me over. Now, I'm on my way to the couples conference, and I'm going to be with our folks, and I'm getting pulled over. You talk about a great testimony. Every car that goes by, I'm looking, is it one of our folks? Is it one of our folks? Is it one of our folks? Come to find out, the lights have been flashing there, the school zone lights, and that means you've got to go a slower speed. Well, I was doing more important things than paying attention to speed limits. I was talking to my wife. And so we got pulled over. Now, it just so happened that that officer was very, very kind. And he did nothing more than give, us a, give me a warning. As he was giving me the warning, get ready to leave, I said, by the way, officer, it was very kind of you today not to give me the ticket, and I appreciate that. I said, I'm, just to let you know, I'm a pastor, and I should have recognized that. What church do you go to? And he told me, we had a conversation, must have been a five-minute conversation, about the Lord and the goodness of the Lord on that day. And that, that time for, I was, I was pulled over. And I don't know how many folks saw me there thinking, Pastor got pulled over for speeding? Well, yeah, that's what happened. <clears throat> I got used in a public example. I hadn't planned on it, but I got put in the public eye. Last year was kind of a rough year for my mom. Of course, most of you know that she was in an accident. of No fault of her own, praise the Lord. She got banged up pretty good. It broke her arm and shook her up. When she was uh, there on 34, uh, waiting for the help, some help, some bystanders stopped and they helped her and were very gracious. They helped her out of the van and uh, over to their car to wait in the warm until the police officer got there. And 
very great, very gracious. And, and apparently, apparently, a switch was turned on with my mother because every person she saw, she was testifying of God's mercy and, and love. And she was telling them, you know, that Jesus loves you, and he's the one that saved me in this, in this accident. So she goes to the hospital, and she, every nurse that comes by, every doctor that comes by, she's testifying of, of God's goodness. And I walked in, and she was in the middle of talking to one of the doctors about, about the Lord. And I'm thinking, Mom, they're here to, to help you. Just, just wait a minute. You can testify after this. I didn't say this. I didn't say this. My mom. I wouldn't do that to my mom. What happened was God decided to put her in the, on stage, on a public stage, in order that he might be glorified. You never know when God's going to put you on stage. You never know. You never know when something's going to happen and it feels like the, 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 the floor is being pulled out from underneath you and you're falling headlong. You don't know but what the God is setting you up to testify of his goodness and his grace. In verse number four, And he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Notice the Pharisees' response. Now these are the folks that knew the word of God backwards and forwards. These are the ones who many of them came daily to discuss the scriptures. They knew it backwards and forwards. This was a no-brainer. This was a pop quiz they should have got 100% on. And yet, notice their answer. They held their peace. Why? Pharisees, you know the answer. Why don't you answer? You could get a smiley face on this one. You held your peace. The honest, simple truth was each of these Pharisees were not interested in the truth because they have an agenda. Of course it was lawful to do good and to save life on the Sabbath. But they were not interested in the truth. They were interested in this man that they hated so violently to be caught. That's all they cared about. You see, Jesus was the embodiment of the truth. He knew his Father's heart regarding the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not established to prevent doing good. The Sabbath was made to remind his people of the importance of setting aside a day to honor the Lord. In Hosea 6, verses 4 and 6, O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew, it goeth away. For I desired mercy, and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. You're bringing in your offerings to me, but what I really wanted is your heart to be right with me. That's what I really wanted. It got me thinking, in what areas am I being unreasonable with God and not answering the question, not being truthful with Him. I wonder if there's something in our lives tonight that we're doing that, quite frankly, if you seriously considered how God felt about it, you would know that what you're doing was sin. Case in point, I love Thanksgiving. I love it. And one of the things I love about it is the spread of food that is incredible. 
marriage supper of the Lamb incredible? I mean, it's, it's glorious. I love it. So your stomach says you're full, don't eat anymore. Your mind says, don't bother me right now. Your pumpkin pie looks really good. <laughs> I'm warning you, there's no room left. Pass the pie. I don't want to be swayed by my nagging conscience. The Holy Spirit says you need to forgive them for what they said about you. But your heart says they really hurt me. They don't deserve to be forgiven. The Spirit says don't make matters worse by answering their sin with more sin. And you choose to get busy so you won't be bothered by your conscience. We refuse to forgive. Are we sometimes being unreasonable with God? Like those Pharisees? In verse number 5, And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. What would have happened on that day if that man had been so, so self-conscious about that hand that when Jesus said, stretch it forth, he said, oh, no. You can't see my hand. It's withered. I don't want to show you that they might laugh at me. I don't want to show you my hand. It looks awful. And since I was a child, they've laughed at me for that hand. I don't want to show you the hand. What would have happened if he would have kept it? in his coat, and not done what Jesus said. He would have walked away with a withered hand. Their, uh, their hard hearts, the uh, Pharisees' hard hearts, prevented them from reason. What angered and grieved Jesus was the stubbornness and hardness of the heart of the Pharisees. What angered him? He knew they knew the answer to the question. He knew they should be saying, of course it's lawful to do right on the Sabbath. Of course it's right to do good on this. Of course. But they weren't saying a word. So he knew it was because they had hard hearts. They were unwilling to entertain Jesus' straightforward reasoning because they knew what he said was true. They held their peace. These men were literally professional debaters. That's what they did all the time. They debated. And they would not even discuss it because they knew that Jesus would win the discussion. Their hard hearts prevented them from reason and underlying their stubbornness was an agenda. They had this agenda and were not be willing to be swayed by the facts. Don't bother me with the facts. <laughs> Don't confuse me. Those are facts. We learn in the next verse that their goal was to destroy Jesus. So committed to their goal they had become, nothing was going to stand in their way. Nothing, including their own sinful ways. Nothing was going to stand in their way. Is it possible that sounds just a little bit like the times that we become so convinced 
of a certain direction that we are not willing to be swayed by anyone or anything. <laughs> Years ago now, I had a man come to me asking me for counsel regarding buying a car, another car. His car was admittedly getting pretty old and ratty looking. He had started checking the car lots just to see what's out there. But I, because of our previous conversations and counseling times, I knew pretty well his financial condition. And so I recommended that he keep this old beater for a while and do what he could to set aside money on a monthly basis for a new car. From that moment, two weeks, 14 days later, he drove up in the church parking lot with a beautiful, low-mileage, late-model car. And it was gorgeous. He couldn't wait to show it to me. It was beautiful. All the whistles and bells. I said, what did you do? He said this. He said, I prayed about it, and I had peace about it. At least until six months later when it got repoed because he couldn't make the payments. Then he had no car, by the way. Are we, you and I, are we willing to subject our agenda to his will? If you cannot honestly say that what you plan to do is God's will, I know this is God's will. I know that what I'm going to do is what God wants me to do. If you cannot say that, then you're best not to do it. Romans 14, 23, And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. You see, at the very root of this experience of the Pharisees, what angered Jesus, the very root, was pride. The pride of these men prevented them from acknowledging the truth that Jesus spoke. Their greatest fear was being humiliated. In Luke 13, 11 and following, it says, Behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. The wording suggests that she had some kind of a malady in which she, she was hunched over and she'd walk around like this. She couldn't stand up. She's that way for 18 years. When Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, art thou loosed from thine infirmity? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. The ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, Think of that! This woman has not been able to stand up for 18 years. Now she is standing freely, no pain, huge smile on her face, and the ruler of the synagogue is angry! Because Jesus healed her on the Sabbath day. Some of the people, there are six days in which men ought to work, in them, therefore, come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. In other words, woman, it wouldn't have been that big of a deal for you to be in pain and humiliated for one more day. A lot of compassion there. The Lord then answered him and said, huh, Thou hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away for watering? And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these eighteen years, be loosed 
from this bond on the Sabbath day? Notice, and when he heard these things, all his adversaries were ashamed. And all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Pride. Pride had blinded them from seeing good. Pride kept these men from encouraging Jesus in his ministry. They should have been the very ones saying, Jesus, praise God for this. If you can heal her, heal her now. They should have been. The religious leaders should have been the ones closest to God, most compassionate, looking for opportunities to serve. And yet they were angry because he did it on the wrong day. How dare you heal someone on the Sabbath? Pride had to be removed in order for them to see. Notice, it's interesting, in verse number 17, And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed. And then what it says, And all the people rejoiced. Notice what came first. His adversaries were ashamed. And then it says, The people rejoiced. There had to have been there had to be a humiliating first. There had to be a getting rid of pride first. And then there could be rejoicing. Humiliation has a way of opening our eyes to the truth. It's perhaps these pompous Pharisees felt a tinge of happiness to see this poor lady be able to stand straight again. However, that little tinge of happiness didn't last very long, for in verse number 6, and the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So, thirdly, the servant faced an angry coalition. In this verse, we're introduced to two very strange bedfellows, Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, you might not know this, but the Pharisees and the Herodians were not friends. They were bitter enemies. They didn't like each other at all. The Herodians were typically hated by the Pharisees. The Herodians were Jews who had formed a remnant loyal to Herod Antipas and his dynasty following his death and its passing. They were not religious. They were political in structure. But they were willing to join with the Pharisees in their common hatred for Jesus. Because their enemies hated the greater enemy, we will link arms and we will make a coalition to put this man down. It's interesting that Jesus had just asked them if, they were, if it were lawful to save life or kill on the Sabbath, and they're already talking about killing him. No wonder they couldn't answer the question. They could not answer it. Because had they answered it, they wouldn't be able to follow through on their agenda. Notice how once the agenda becomes the master, all other voices are silenced, even God's. Once you are on the track with your agenda, you hear nothing. You're just going down the track. Verse number 7 but Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, 
and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. So the servant, Jesus, the master servant, attracted multitudes. But what we're going to find out in the text is these multitudes are really dangerous. It seems like a pleasant thing. There are so many, many, possibly thousands of people that are following Jesus. But it's not real safe for Jesus to be attracting the multitudes. Consider the political climate now. The Jews are under Roman authority. And the Jews have an emperor. I'm sorry, the Romans have an emperor. They're, they're, they're led by them. And they have no desire for any local uprisings. And so with these mass gatherings, the multitudes are setting Jesus up to be arrested. From all regions round about, people came. Why did they come? They heard about the great things that Jesus was doing. They came to be healed. They came to be entertained. They came to have their needs met. That's interesting because they had no Facebook back then. They had no telephones for robocalls. There was no technological form of communication then. But word quickly spread, and the multitudes came. Because great things are attractive. When great things are happening, it draws a crowd. When something's really happening, it draws a crowd. The crowds were there not, though, because they were spiritually motivated. There's nothing said here because of their interest in the truth. They were not coming because they wanted to hear Jesus expound the Word of God. They were coming because they wanted to watch Him do tricks. They were drawn by Jesus' works. We're trying to arrange for David Korn to come back again. And some of you remember David Korn, wonderful ministry. Great, great man of God, a great preacher. But his hook, if you will, is magic. And he comes to a place like ours, and he goes into the public schools, and he puts on presentations, and he draws. And when we had him here, this auditorium was full, full of public school students, full of them. The honest, simple truth is they did not come for the spiritual aspect. They come to watch the tricks. And he knows that, and he uses that because while they're here for the tricks, he preaches them. That's wonderful. But they didn't come for the spiritual. They came for the tricks. The multitudes came for the tricks. I'm not being disrespectful. They came because they had heard that this man's doing these incredible things. They came for the great things. However, these crowds were potentially dangerous. So now Jesus had the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Herodians, and possibly the very Romans themselves as his enemies. And, and he has barely begun his public ministry. I thought about this. I thought about what happens when large crowds become your focus. Well, one thing, in order to keep 
large crowds, you have to keep them the way that you got them. The Sunday after this place was packed with public school students, I don't remember if any of them came back. You know why? Because I don't have any card tricks. I can't saw somebody in half and put them back together. I, I don't know how to do that. Oh, that's not true. I know how to saw somebody in half. I don't know how to put them back together. <laughs> that would draw a crowd, wouldn't it? <laughs> the way that we attracted them is the way we keep them. You soon become unwilling to preach the whole counsel of God. If you're only interested in crowds. Because you might preach something that offends. And you might lose people because you stepped on toes if your only motivation is crowds. You've got a problem because 2 Timothy 4.2 says to preach the word. And by the way, I mentioned just in a recent message that there are different, there are different translations or different words for preach. And one of them is to let them have it. Herald the truth is what it literally means. And that's what this one is. Preach the word. Now, preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. If the only motivation is crowds. What if, like Jesus, your motivation is to be a servant? Your motivation is not for reputation. Your motivation is not for attaboys. Your motivation is not to draw huge crowds just for crowds' sake. Look at the numbers we had. But your motivation is to serve people. Jesus found out as a servant that one of his greatest enemies was pride. And what I found out that my greatest enemy to being a servant is my pride. And so tonight, I'm looking at folks who have chosen to come back on a Sunday night. It's dark outside. The roads aren't all that great. It's a little slippery out. And yet you chose to come to be in the house of the Lord. Why? Because you're already putting into practice tonight's message. But let's expand it. I'm preaching to the choir. Literally, I'm preaching to those who came for choir practice. Uh, let's choose to lay our reputation down and just serve. Would I like this place full of people? Absolutely. Why? Because I want to minister to more people. I want more people going into the kingdom of God. I want more people growing in grace. I want more people getting excited about the truths of God's word. I want more people coming and say, Pastor, you won't believe what God showed me this week. How exciting. But I want it for more than just one or two or five or ten. I want it for as many people as possible. So let's, this week, look for ways that we can serve others. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for the sweet time we've had together tonight. Lord, it's been rich. Lord, as we've, we've shared in fellowship already, We've got to sing your praises. We've been encouraged and challenged by our missionary report, Terry and Sarah, and I pray your blessing upon them. Lord, we've 
we've heard from you now in your word, realizing that, that you as the master servant came not to draw attention to yourself, you came to serve. Help us, Lord, to be just like you. And Lord, in order for us to do it, we have to lay our pride down. So Spirit of God, would you continue to chip away at us, continue to work on us, and continue to help us to lay our will down that we might be filled with you, and may you be glorified. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.